We didn't really introduce ourselves, should we? Y'all could. They know who I am. They know me. Welcome to the Hashing It Out podcast, where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. Your hosts are Dr. Corey Petty, currently doing research at Status and waiting for other people to keep up. You listen to anything I just fucking said? Jesse Santiago, a former electrical engineer now working on decentralized storage at Status. Oh, I don't know. If it's, if it's something that was like interesting, then I'd talk about it. I'd have a lot to talk about it. And with the deep voice and the deep questions, Dee Ferguson. I, I can't stop looking at it, but let me stop looking at it so we can take care of business. And I'm the Hashing It Out showrunner, Christian Noguera. You know, these two are just outtakes out the ass. Part two of our episode on data is sponsored by Zengo. Hey everybody, it's Dee here. Uh, you know, I've been using Zengo. It's a wallet. It's a crypto wallet. We all know crypto wallets. We've been in crypto for a mighty long time. We know all the crypto ways that come with the crypto wallets. But let me tell you a little something about Zengo. It's a simple wallet. You know, I like it. You know why? I like simplicity. I need simplicity in my life. And Zengo is a simple wallet. It's custodial. But you know what? Just because you don't have your keys doesn't mean you can't have ease, right? So, you know, I got to say, I like Zengo. I like Zengo because it's easy. And uh, I think uh, you'll like it too. So go to Zengo.com. Download the wallet. Give it a shot. This week, Corey and Jesse talk to researcher Yasek Zieka. Stick around after the official interview for wrap-up chat with Corey, Jesse, and D. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are on our second episode of blockchain data and how it scales, what it is, what it's for. And today, we have Yasek Zieka. And uh, tell us a little bit about what you do and where you come from and uh, kind of like your background a bit. Yeah, hey, everyone. Nice to be here. Uh, I'm Yatsik, as Cora introduced me. Um, why am I here? Well, uh, I got to know Corey at Status, so we both work there. Uh, I guess I'm part of the research group. We have a fairly big one now at Status. Um, I guess my background is in computer science, quite obviously, but uh, I've been playing around with... Um, various internet technologies since since they started to change society basically um this was yeah maybe in the 90s where you know people started getting access to to the internet and i think one of the big changes that that was brought about back then was was really access to information and data so that was pretty cool to be part of and now now I guess we're doing the same, just <laughs> at a different scale and with, with, with a different model a little bit. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I do nowadays. How old were you, Yasek, in the 90s, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, you know, now I'm 40, what, two, three? So um, that was when I was like, you know, 13 and up, let's say. 
um, we had internet at school um, and then I got it at home. And, but, but like before that, we used to run these systems called bulletin boards, so BDSs, right? So this was basically on a phone line, you would uh, dial somebody with your computer and then you would download whatever information they had and, and you would do this periodically. And then you had like message boards where you could send messages to people and they would get propagated throughout, through this link of, of bulletin boards all operated on phones, like pre-internet tech. Um, and then obviously like things got a little bit faster when, when the internet and ordinary routers took over that role. But that, that's, that's around the time when I started. Like just to understand the level of technology that was available at the time. Yeah, back then, like, you know, the internet was, you could call it quite distributed or decentralized in the sense that you were very, very much peer to peer. Like you just said, you dialed into someone, you downloaded their things and had some level of propagation from, you know, one person's bulletin board to the next. But like, I was a part of this kind of show series. We've gone through the concept of how we now build these distributed networks or blockchain networks. and. And we found a way for us to kind of centralize that data, or at least like the data source. And we have a level of trust that that data is uh, not manipulated or the same that we we didn't get with the internet very much. So like we interviewed Dimitri um, from the last episode, we came across this, uh, this concept that I thought was interesting. And that is this, the purpose of the data in blockchain networks is specifically for verification purposes. And it started with the Bitcoin and that you needed to go be, be able to go back to the Genesis block in order to properly verify that a change in all the data was done correctly. But as we've scaled out these networks and the way they're growing now, that's not necessarily the case. And we're throwing away a little bit of that. And so like, I kind of wanted to dive into the point of data in blockchain networks, but maybe start with you maybe giving your your view of um, like how data structures have evolved over the course of blockchain networks since their inception. Huh, that's a big question. Um, I guess we can start from this, from, from actually again, like my uni times, because this was, this was really one of those moments where where things came together, right? Two things two things happened then. Um, the first thing that happened was that the Cord and Kademia papers were written, right? And what they did was that they brought to life this idea of the distributed hash table. Um, this was really like a major advance in in distributed data uh, processing. Like before that, we had hashing, of course, so we could like verify that data corresponded to some small value, but nobody had really thought about how to how to use a distributed network to to store data and like how to assign data to nodes and, and there were like a lot of things that came together then. Um, the other thing that was interesting was really BitTorrent, I think that was around 2004 or 5-ish, right? So Kademlia was 2001, 2002, I think, 
something like this. Then BitTorrent, right? And what BitTorrent did was add a layer of uh, economy on top of that. And it's not really economy as in in the bit, bit in, in the Bitcoin network. It's more like a barter system where you know I give you this particular part of this particular file and I get a little bit back. Um, so those two kind of like foundational um, research results or, or technologies uh, led the foundation to what we have today, right? Which is these distributed networks that are governed by an economy or by this economic thinking. Um, and I think it's interesting to look at it from this perspective, like, First of all, this barter system where, where you assign some kind of value to data. Um, and then you also have like, you know, the nuts and bolts level, which is basically how do you distribute that net data in a, in, a, in a reasonably efficient way. So th those are like two, two aspects of blockchain that are, that are really, really important uh, to cover. And then there was a period of quiet, right? There was, there was the Web2 period where, where everybody was excited about huge data centers. So, so this, these distributed systems, they got a little bit less attention, let's say. Um, everybody was very excited that Google could offer, you know, a gigabyte of email storage or, or, or maps could view like the whole world in satellite images on your computer. That was really cool. So maybe around 2010, like, there wasn't that much happening except in the background where people like me and like a lot of other peer-to-peer -peer hackers were still excited about the potential of uh, these more distributed systems. And then came along Bitcoin, right? And they put together like a lot of this past research um, and it kind of generalized um, the value model of, of BitTorrent as well. So no longer did you have to like trade data for data, you, you, you could think about value and, and um, represent value in, in a data model that, uh, that got computed in a distributed way such that we could all trust it without having to trust any single participant. Um, so that was like when, when, when the second revolution came along. And then of course, um, the third revolution would have been that you added execution on top of that, um, like Ethereum did. And now, uh, now we've gone back a little bit in the sense that we've separated out the execution again, and we're talking exclusively about data. Like so, there's a pendulum that swings there, which, in which, you know, you take an idea, you 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 refine it a little bit, you reach an end, the plateau. You develop it again, like you reach another plateau, and like, and then you kind of swing back and look at, but what are we really doing? Why are we at this plateau? And 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 now people are talking a lot about data availability instead as being the the next big problem in in um, distributed data storage. Do you agree in which the the way that Ethereum is going about solving data availability? Um, do you agree with that direction? Yeah, I mean, um, it does make sense. I mean, you have this concept of integration, right? Between so, so when you look at an application stack like Ethereum, 
Um, you're integrating a bunch of services. Um, and once you've gotten the, the, the model as a whole to, to a decent state, like it's kind of working, um, the next step is really to look at the pieces individually again. And although data availability uh, has always been a requirement for a system like Ethereum or Bitcoin or, or, or any other system, um, or any other blockchain really. Um, I think what's happening now is that we're just examining that, like shining a light on that particular problem. Like previously we'd assume that um, people would make data available and uh, now we're thinking about like what happens when they don't. Um, and the second thing we're thinking about is like, uh, let's, leave the execution to later before we can execute we need to have access to data like what can we do when we have access to data and how can we break the system when when that access is taken away um so data available like like looking at the problem in isolation first of all it enables um new ways to think about what happens later by creating a set of properties and, and an interface for that data uh, and with that interface defined, execution like execution with the EVM is one model that you can mm, put on top of that stack. But you can also think about other uh, kinds of stacks like L2s that where uh, what really matters is for them is 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 transaction ordering, right? Yeah, it's an interesting way to view it, especially like the histor the history of it, the history of it. I like I'm gonna say it, I'm gonna say it that way from now on. Uh, is the first kind of implementations of all these blockchain networks were just like how do we get it all together so that we have some semblance of a working system where it could go from computers in a peer to peer network, and in the end end up with this concept of digital scarcity that we can do stuff with. And then now that we have these systems, we've realized, I mean, and we've pushed them to the limit. Like I, I often have this analogy of like, a, we've, we've, we built a bucket and then we filled it up and found out where all the holes are that's leaking. And but we can't, so we need to figure out how to either patch those holes or build, or build better buckets. And what you're saying is most of the work now is identified as there's a bunch of holes in the way we treat access to the data and our ability to scale the whole thing when we have a certain level of guarantee that access to the data is there. And once we have that, we can kind of do whatever we want. And that's kind of the subject of the next part of the series is like, now that we have data, what do we do with it? Which can go into maybe different execution models. But how do you see that scaling? Like, why is access to the data a priority over what we do with it? Um, I think it's worth take a little step back there, right? Uh, and and look at like why, why people store data. Um, and I think we can broadly uh, divide the world into these two different models. One is where the data has some value to the to the like person or node storing the data, right? And and the other one 
is where it doesn't, or at least it doesn't naturally have any value. Now, looking at BitTorrent and Ethereum, for example, uh, for the node operator, the data has value. They need that data in order to receive their rewards. Um, there's also plenty of people running nodes. I wouldn't call it altruistically, really, but because they have a business case around having that data available. Um, it's directly linked to their application. So even though they, they're not primary users of their, their data, they have an indirect use of that data being available. And as such, they are, they're willing to expend some resources to, to process it, to store it, to distribute it, and so on. Uh, and I think here, it's kind of like the butter model in, in BitTorrent. Like if I have a particular file that I want to download, it, it's kind of like in my interest to to make the other parts of that file available because the economy of BitTorrent is such that if I give somebody a little bit of piece of data, they're going to give me a piece of their data uh, and dedicate more bandwidth to me. Um, if it's random data that just somebody wants to store on the internet that nobody else is interesting, interested in, let's say like, I don't know, my encrypted backup, right? There's no reason for them to be storing that data. Um, so what happens next is that if you look at uh, this kind of setup where you have a third party that is storing data on your behalf, so to speak, um, you need to compensate them somehow. And the next step then is like, if you're compensating them, them, how do you verify that they're actually doing the job? Like before we had this model where everybody was just assumed to be doing uh, the job of storing the data because, because it was in their interest and um, they couldn't operate the system without storing the data. But now we're getting into now, when we're starting to decompose the system into its constituent pieces, we're looking at data in isolation. So when we look at the model where the data perhaps is not valuable to the person storing it, we need a way to verify that uh, they're actually doing their job. We no longer can rely on this altruistic model where they have a, another interest to, to keep the data around. Uh, so instead we, incentivize them to store the data and prove that they have it. Um, so we're kind of artificially pumping up the value of the data from the um, perspective of the provider, right? No longer are they storing just random blobs for nothing, but they're ra storing random blobs for something. And instead of storing random blobs for their own interest, they're storing it for, um, for a profit. Once you've uh, created a modular system like that, you can also swap out those modules and you can think about the properties that each of these modules has. And maybe you can come up with a different uh, data storage model where, where, where the data is intrinsically valuable to, to its participants. So when you're building a community, for example, uh, although the data kind of looks random to an outsider, within that community, might, it might hold value.
So you can suddenly build networks that, that, that work on different economic models. Yeah, so you bring more of that altruistic sense back when you have a community. Yeah, I wouldn't call it altruistic. It's really just that um, in a system where you don't trust, where you don't have a relationship to the service provider outside of, you know, uh, the economic relationship that you establish when you pay them, um, you need to have a common sort of common value system that, that where 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 you can pay for that service, right? But within a community, uh, those value systems are not are often not expressed in, you know, tokens, money, whatever. Um, they might be expressed in in trust or in in, in social credit instead. But the the point of the exercise is that you know not 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 everybody not everything fits under a single module mo model. And by tearing the system apart a little bit, uh, you can enable new use cases and new models. I'd argue that we have done that now, and this is the direction in which we're moving because the model that we chose in the first place was not scalable. And an example of that is if everyone stores everything you're going to end up in a scenario where people are like you know like if, if we're kind of continuing along that line of like the data in the system is being kept because it's necessary to operate so i can trust that anyone in the system has all the information because they have to have it in order to continue running an op like operating within the system uh and that, that community, if you will, grows to include a bunch of different people for various reasons, then it becomes untenable. And so, and that's kind of where we're at now. Like, like if you look at Ethereum, if I want to run a node, I run and process transactions for everything in the entire system, regardless of whether or not I care about it. And so that's just an unreasonable way to try and scale a system to a global financial network. And so we're retooling it to, to try and allow different communities to care about different pieces of data or have a model where I can trust that people are storing something appropriately if I pay them for it. And so you're, you're allowing for multiple different communities to operate at the same time within the same network under different models or modules or whatever you want to call it, because it's unreasonable to try to scale a network where everyone does everything all of the time. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, if you look at the internet at large, I mean, that that idea has been part of the system since the beginning, right? Um, and what's really interesting is, is the way in which the internet grows really, but also the way that it can handle uh, not being connected at all times to all of the internet at the same time, mm -hmm. right? So we have this, this, this idea of, um, well, we used to have at least nowadays, it's IPv6, it's supposed to be, but but the idea of the subnets, right? So on the internet, you would have kind of like a hierarchy that where each node was independent until it got connected to, to its neighborhood. And then that neighborhood was kind of independent until it connected itself to the next neighborhood. And if, if the line between those two went down, which it frequently did in the past, um, like within, 
the community things would still keep going. And then when you reestablished connectivity again, like they would sync up and you would have to deal with uh, updates on both sides and so on. And then we got a little bit lazy because you know, these things started working very well, too well almost. Um, and we kind of started assuming that we're going to be online all the time and, and connected to everybody at all times. And, and, and what we're seeing now is that uh, some of the thinking that went into making these systems resilient in the past, simply because it was necessary from a quality of service perspective. Nowadays, they're becoming interesting uh, for different reasons, right? Where connectivity gets limited, for example, because you're at an airport and the VPN or the, um, the firewall at the airport doesn't allow you to connect to your service when, when you want to. Uh, or maybe you're on a corporate uh, intranet and, and again, like there, there, there are rules that prevent you from connecting. Or in the case of nation states, there are uh, wall, firewalls being built around entire nation states that permit or don't permit certain kinds of traffic. And, and you might find yourself uh, in these networks and, 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 and you still want to have a reasonable expectation of your, your services working, especially when they're important services like you know, communication, um, economic activity, uh, and other things that we kind of take for granted in the modern world, at least in the <laughs> uh, convenient parts of the world in which I happen to live. So what are the directions that we're going in terms of trying to I don't know, bring back a little bit of that previous concept of I can be separated from the whole for a period of time, experience a reasonable kind of understanding that I can operate locally. And then when I come back, I have access to the things I need, I have access to, or the other side of that, and that I... Our, our resiliency is so much better that people's ability to censor me is further mitigated such that like building that firewall is much harder. Uh, well, there are several aspects to that question, right? One is that, um, let's take censorship as we're talking about it these days. Um, one is the ability to censor somebody permanently versus the ability to censor somebody temporarily, right? This is this is a good example. And like when you go offline, for example, because you're in a tunnel, you're you're effectively censoring yourself uh, for the duration of that while traversing the tunnel, right? Um, but the harm incurred by that censorship is, is minimal because as soon as you get out of that tunnel, uh, you're fine. Uh, so I think that's one interesting thing that blockchain solved really well, which is basically that if at some point you recorded a particular transaction or whatever it might be, that stays there. And, and even if somebody shuts you off from the system for a while, it's still going to stay there. And when you come back, you can sort of pick up from that point and 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 prove to the world that that something really happened. And um, 
that problem is solved very well by the existing systems. Uh, what's not solved is when when you want to take new action, right? And how do you how do you ensure continuity of service or at least partial continuity? And here it's a bit of a this is a little bit like trying to deal with security, right? You, you, there is no perfect system. It's more of a cat and mouse game where you as the you know person wanting to transact usually have an advantage and and your advantage is really that uh, you only need to get your message across once whereas somebody wants you wants to prevent you from getting a particular message across needs to do that repeatedly all the time for an extended period of time so so in that sense uh, that asymmetry in censorship is what gives us hope that we can sort of defeat most most forms of uh, constraints and limits that are placed upon us by uh, by various actors in in the system. But that, of course, requires designing protocols in such a way that they mm, consider this balance in who is censoring and who is not censoring and then design, like build in to their design, the ability, for example, for delayed action or whatever it might be, but, but like such that the system going offline for a while isn't catastrophic to the individuals benefiting from the system, All right? And this is, this is one of the reasons why these decentralized systems are so powerful compared to uh, centralized systems, which is this idea of a single point of failure not being exploitable. You were touching upon um, kind of the, the beginnings of remote auditing to just make sure data is available. Could you go into a little bit of the, the differences in terms of um, the, the way that it's implemented in a, in a peer-to-peer sort of way versus maybe a more centralized uh, manner? Um, here, I think, I think it's useful to remind ourselves again of the historical journey that we've been upon. So like long ago, um, hard drives were not very reliable. In fact, when, when I started playing around with these things, we'd use floppy disks, right? And and let's say that 5% of the time your floppy disks failed. So you sort of naturally learn to, to deal with that. You would have multiple copies of things. You would uh, come up, like um, researchers would come up with techniques, error correcting codes and things so that you would add redundancy to, to, to all systems at all levels. And then when, when systems become too good, like you, you sort of, you're no longer used to these errors happening. Um, so when we build a distributed system, we need to bring back those lessons from, from, from when the hard drives were failing, right? And so what we do is that we start reasoning about them uh, statistically, first of all, so that if any single participant fails, we should still have like a reasonable expectation of having 
the data being being available without um, paying too much for it. Uh, and this statistical approach um, gives us guarantees just like in the real world. Like we, a real hard drive can fail. It's just that it fails much less often than let's say a node going offline on the internet. Um, so we need to translate that difference into um, a model that is able to deal with more failure than you typically expect in your, like in your, in your centralized system. Uh, so, I mean, there are various techniques of doing that. You want to go into data replication. You want to go into models where, um, um, where you can reconstruct data from a small amount of pieces instead of having to have all the pieces all the time. Um, that's one aspect, like making it pos like making the system tolerate failure better. Uh, and the other thing is adding this economic model on top where people are rewarded for for performing the service, even though the data per se doesn't interest them. Um, and I think there's actually a third aspect to that, which, which is increasingly becoming important, which is also this idea of plausible deniability, which is basically that uh, when you are storing data and you are getting rewarded for storing that data, you should ideally not know what is in there because if you know what, what you're storing, you, you, you sort of become responsible for uh, moderating that data. Whereas if you simply have no ability to, to know what you're storing, the only thing, the only transaction between you and the system is that you store some data and you get rewarded for it, and then you're sort of safe from that point and you cannot uh, censor the data. And all these things, you can express them as costs, right? So if, if I know what I'm storing, that's a, that's a risk and risk is associated with cost. Um, if I know that I'm storing and that something is valuable to me, that's, um, that's a benefit. And then sort of the, the price goes down and 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 there are all these variables to play with yeah legal culpability is definitely a reason for why some of these systems kind of have come into being um yeah that's just one example of censorship that's another one is like if i if there's a community that you know i i did a talk at defcon and the the point of that the general concept of that talk is these systems are being built to be to mitigate assholes. That's the whole concept <laughs> of decentralized systems is with any community, there exists assholes and they're going to do things that are um, against the general good of that community for selfish purposes or doesn't matter what for. It's just against the general good of the community. And whenever you give them options to express that desire to go against the grain, they'll take them. 
And the point of your systems is to limit their options as much as possible, such that we move from that old motto of don't be evil to can't be evil. And I find that interesting to like witness over the years of how these networks have grown to original Bitcoin being everyone does everything and we have full redundancy across every node in the system and all of the data is required to be done correctly so that we can have a strong confidence that there, that like if I ask any, any individual node, it's going to be correct because they all have to have all the data in order to operate. And we have full redundancy such that I can kind of load balance. I can ask a few people and it should match to and that's, that's a generally unscalable system. If you think about the size of the world and the amount of data we're trying to store to like, now different models of like, well, now we're not going to talk so much about everyone needing all of the data in order for the entire system to operate. And I have to think about how to kind of incentivize them as well as mitigate their ability to be an asshole within the entire system. And I, I think that it's just, it's generally interesting that that's kind of the direction we've gone. And yet we're still bringing in ideas that we we're learning about when the underlying hardware was faulty. So like, uh, that's, that's our way of kind of fixing it is using lessons we've learned a long time ago. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of these systems were built on the assumptions that people would not be assholes when using them. Right. We, the internet used to be not encrypted, um, which certainly was interesting. Um, but it also enabled a level of exploitation that 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 would have made the system unusable had it had it allowed to be continued like had it had something not changed and what changed from from the unencrypted internet was uh that we changed to an encrypted internet and what we're changing the internet to now is like an encrypted and verified internet where not only <clears throat> not only are you excluding the ability for any intermediary on your on the path between you and your service provider to snoop snoop in on the um, communication but you're also also asking your 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 provider to verify that they've carried out uh, the task that you assigned to them correctly right so in the internet of before uh, you would send data through five or ten nodes before it got to its final destination and you'd kind of trust that they would forward the data correctly they wouldn't tamper with it they wouldn't uh, use the information they're in for for other purposes um, and we saw that this wasn't quite true, so we started encrypting everything, right? And then the next step now is that we also start verifying what, what the service provider is actually doing. And, and Bitcoin and Ethereum, they're obviously one way of doing that. They're just extremely expensive, right? We're, like you say, we're, we're, we're having everybody verify that, that, that things were done correctly, uh, even if it's just my, you know, $5 coffee cup transaction at the local coffee shop, 
which is of no interest to anybody else but me and that coffee shop. So I'm trying to think about how to structure a question around how does where do we go from here? Because so general generally verifiable encrypted computation of transactions. So I think the way we're going is probably modularizing data and encrypting it and making sure it's there. And then also modularizing the execution component to be general as well, right? So like that's kind of the order in which Yasek was talking about. So right now we're focusing on data and I don't think anybody's come up with a solution where not only do you verify that the data is there and not distributed, and it doesn't have to be naively replicated amongst all of the machines in the peer-to-peer -peer network, but once you kind of optimize storing data that is incentivized by the user and encrypted, uh, then we can go ahead and maybe begin talking about um, retrievability guarantees as well. Because that's something that I don't think, in terms of performance, I don't think peer-to-peer -peer networks, um, at least from what I've seen in this space, they don't have the same kind of performance uh, that kind of more centralized architecture has in terms of delivery of content, whether that be movies or, you know, music. You know, there's no real, um, I don't know, platform that can say it's, you know, purely decentralized in terms of its infrastructure and, and offers all of those guarantees? Well, that's actually, there is an interesting story around that, which is basically that um, around the time when, when, when BitTorrent was being invented, uh, there used to be all these file sharing networks, right? And, and, and where? in particular in Sweden, where, where, where I grew up, huh? Kazaa and LimeWire and Bearshare. all of those, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was Napster, it was Direct Connect, it was Kazaa and so on. But Kazaa in particular, yeah, yeah, a lot of them, right? Yeah. Um, Kazaa in particular, I think it was, uh, was run by uh, a couple of dudes from Sweden. And they later went on to uh, create Skype. And the initial versions of Skype were actually peer-to-peer. -peer. And this was really interesting because that was an efficient way to grow Skype. Like if, if I'm setting up a conversation between uh, two nodes, there is no reason why I should be contacting like, like all the traffic from all the world should go via a single server. So what they did was that they established a peer-to-peer -peer network where they used pretty much the same technologies that they had uh, developed during the file sharing eras. Um, so these things that started as, you know, a little bit these underground networks, they found their way into commercial products as well and like established products. And then what happened next was that probably Skype needed to get into content moderation and therefore they centralized everything back again. Um, but uh, this brings us again to this topic of verifiable and encrypted, right? The, 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 the moment that you gain this control over the system where you can moderate the content, 
that is becoming, first of all, a risk, like we see, like a legal risk, let's say the GDPR and all these other aspects where the mere fact that you're holding on to some data exposes you to risk. Um, and then for me as a user, if, if I don't have to expose my data to these service providers, why should I? Because it exposes me to risk as well. It, like, it exposes me to the risk that somebody, let's say it's an economic transaction, that somebody will front run me or that somebody, some entity that disagrees with what I'm doing um, will try to censor me. So just like before where, where you know, the internet in general went from unencrypted to encrypted, um, I think that's like going forwards, that's a journey that we'll be seeing for more and more systems, blockchains in particular, where transactions are private by default. Like Zcash pioneered this um, in many ways. Um, but now I think one of the big things happening is, is really all the general purpose, zero knowledge based execution environments. And what's interesting is that the thing that all these environments need exactly is an underlying layer of data storage that is reliable enough and where the participants actually know nothing of the data that they're storing. I think this is a, it might be interesting to think about this in the frame of um, like data at rest and data in motion. And for the good portion of the history of uh, focus for adding encryption or like removing people's ability to um, tamper with things has been focused on data at data in motion. So like we added encryption to the internet because we added people's credit card numbers to the, the, the connections that people were making with stores when they were buying e-commerce stuff. And so the ability for someone to steal that information, which is just a series of numbers and then use their credit card was way too easy. So we needed to find a way to fix that so that people couldn't snoop on these connections and, and do something about it. Or at least like the number of people who could do it was, was, was mitigated. And now we're at a point where like, all right, well, like now that that stuff is being stored somewhere, that's now, those are now honeypots. The information as it's being stored is where the manipulation is being happened is, 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 is happening. And now we're focusing on that aspect of um, now that we've got a better ideas on how to encrypt data in motion, we need to find way better ideas of encrypting data at rest. Mm -hmm. And I mean, really one of the best ways is, is to not store it at all, right? Not store the data, but maybe store a representation thereof or as many of these systems, these, these, these emerging systems work, you store a proof of the data, right? Or a proof of a particular aspect of the data. This is, this is what zero knowledge is about. Like you, you no longer show everything to somebody that's interested in only a part of like what you know, you just prove to them that you know, or you have a balance or, a credit card belongs to you, but you never really reveal the details of of it so that they can never reuse what you gave them, right? And that way, um, 
you eliminate a lot of risks for a lot of participants in the system. And and this is probably also why why many of us are so excited about it, because like we'll get back to this world where 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 we can transact uh without having to worry about um the assholes as you put it <laughs> that's another like you, you, that opens up to something i wanted to get at and we're somewhat running out of time here is um an alternative method for mitigating assholes is like self-validation and you know you work on a few things in this area that allows people to not have to run heavyweight nodes in order to get the information that they want. They can ask anyone they want and then verify it independently. Can you talk about that kind of alternative model to things a little bit? Um, yeah, briefly, I guess. I guess many of, like a lot of the technologies that we've developed over the past few years is about compressing information down to something that is easily verifiable. And easily verifiable changes over time, right? And and like at Status, we have a couple of projects going now where, uh, for example, your wallet balance, um, very simple thing, right? We we went from this model where um, we would run a full Ethereum node on a phone, but then Ethereum grew too large, so in order to show the balance, we had to use a third-party service to view it, to get it. Um, and there wasn't really a good way of verifying it. And now what's happened recently really is that we've been able to, to find a compact representation of something that we can verify that a provider of this information can provide. And it's very, very lightweight. And this is kind of like the holy grail of of all these systems that with a minimal proof that you can verify reasonably on you know commodity hardware you can arrive at an answer as to whether this is really what 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 the community agreed upon or not and there are many uh techniques and technologies involved in getting there but um, I think this aspect of really, really everybody being able to do it on normal devices is 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 important for democratization of 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 these systems. Like if the moment that we build systems that are so complex that you need specialized equipment, hardware, um, access in order to verify them, we've we've kind of lost lost the original purpose of doing it. So this goes back to not having to trust the provider, right? We still have providers in these systems and they still provide data, but um, the challenge is to find representations that people can trust, say a cryptographic proof that is simple enough that they can reasonably model it in their head. Um, even if they don't understand the details of the math, but like it has to be approachable, explainable to a five-year-old. Um, and it has to be generally available. Like it can't be too heavy, too, too expensive to do. This may be something that um, 
you you both know it may be a dumb question but in terms of um compression how is that done um in ethereum to to give you know um like a, a lightweight verifiable uh proof that that the transactions have been i guess batched and and uh and attested to uh, so there's several pieces to that actually uh, so if we go back to the balance query, right? First of all, um, one of the foundational technologies right now in use is, is Merkle trees. So a Merkle tree is basically a tree representation of a bunch of data that leads up to a single value that represents all of that data. And that single value is, is compact. So your balance together with all the other balances in the count state and so on, uh, is stored on every Ethereum node and every Ethereum node can generate a tree of hashes that represents that data. And if you take, if you pick out the right nodes in that tree, you can verify that balance having access to the root of the tree. So in order to verify the root of the tree, um, you need to know what the most recent state of the network is. And the way that's done in Ethereum right now is through proof of stake on, on the beacon chain. Um, so there's a bunch of validators, they come together, they look at, each individually looks at all the information that's been processed uh, from their own point of view and they select a particular block as being the current head of the network, like the most recent state. Uh, and the change that happened recently in Ethereum that allows us to verify uh, state data, this, this Merkle tree, is, is really that we added uh, something called the sync committee. And the sync committee is simply a random selection of validators, 500 of them, 512. And they vote for a particular block as being the head of the network in every block. So with the delay of roughly 15 seconds, we can know that uh, a representative subset of all the validators considered a particular state to be the valid one. And we're playing a probability game here. Like if these 512 say that this is like the latest state of Ethereum, the chances of that being not true is very low. And at the same time, 512 uh, validators or, or public keys really is something that any device out there can manage like reasonably it's almost that you could do it like by hand. Um, so there's this um, balance between how, how much data you need in order to verify and how much security you get out of it. And these uh, sync committees, as they're called the 512 validators, they, they represent a particular balance that is quite, quite reasonable. Uh, so these 512 validators, they sign on to a particular block as being the head and that block contains the root of the tree 
of the Merkle tree. And therefore, if we ask the provider to give a balance and also what's called the Merkle proof, which is a part of the Merkle tree needed to verify that particular balance, then we can compare what the validators thought and what the provider uh, is trying to prove to us. And if there's a mismatch, then we can highlight that to the user, right? And then uh, the user can take action. At least they can know that uh, something is certainly part of the consensus right now, or something is not part of the, con or at least it's unknown whether it's part of the consensus and they need to perform further verification. I think that's a great way to wrap up kind of this conversation. Uh, like a cut a practical application of what we're trying to do now to give reasonable access to this type of stuff and the way in which we build these networks to provide some level of guarantees that something was done across a distributed nodes that has a bunch of potentially has a bunch of assholes in it. So thank you for coming on the show and helping us kind of walk through that. I think we got a pretty good picture at this point. Is there anything else you would have, like this to ask that we didn't? <laughs> well, you know, there's there's so much going on in this space right now, right? We could like talk for hours about it. Um, oh, yeah. But I think this journey of of how we went from an untrusted internet to kind of like an encrypted internet and now verified internet, it's really representative on a whole lot of levels. Like even at this banal level of you know, looking at my balance in this in 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 the app, um, it's it's really the same steps that we have to go through, both at a at an individual level and at a systemic level, right? And 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 remembering the individual in these systems is is to me at least very important because that's why we're building these things for, well, for ourselves and for for individuals, not for for the system to to work, but 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 rather for people, right? And um, it's important that we build systems that people that don't necessarily have all the knowledge still can trust and use without being abused. Ashing It Out is working with Infinity Keys to let you claim a free listener NFT for this episode. You can find the Hashing It Out challenge on the infinitykeys.io puzzle page or use the link in the show notes. Enter this week's passcode FLUFFY, that's F-L-U-F-F-Y. Then claim the NFT on Ethereum, Avalanche, Polygon, or Optimism. Yeah, so Yasek, um, it's interesting. Uh, in the organization, he's known as like a treant. He talks real slow and he makes pauses. Most of the time when he says something, you want to listen to it because it's usually important. And I think this was a, a good example of that. Like the way in which he explained the history of things and how it has led up to where we are now and kind of how we go from here to figure out how to like what the purpose of data is in a blockchain and where it goes and who cares about it. I thought it was like a, just a very good narrative and i think it, it for me it's probably going to change the way i talk about blockchains in general when i'm explaining it to new people yeah it was nice listening to his historical take on how he was a teenager in the 90s and then uh, was using um 
like message boards and then how I guess they, they changed over the years and to more dynamic messaging services that are centralized and how now we're kind of coming full circle in terms of trying to make distributed networks have kind of the same performance qualities that these centralized messaging um, providers have, but in a more modular fashion. And we're kind of like abstracting the different pieces uh, of the system. Like, you know, data was a, was a component that uh, he talked to and how it might scale by, by way of um, taking it um, and, you know, like he, he mentioned that it would be, it would be better for the data to not be replicated naively by everybody within the, within the system. So like, for instance, current, it used to be that, um, before like light clients, like Nimbus, you had to run the full client and have the whole blockchain synced up. And so now you have the possibility of uh, using like Oracle proofs, the ability to kind of run a client that uh, attests to, was it, how does it work, Corey, in terms of the attestations and then the, the sync committee of like a smaller subset of the entire validator? Yeah, so there's a bunch of, there's a, a subset of all the validators that basically like come together to say this is the canonical block and provide an additional feed for people to then verify. Like, it's like right now when you use uh, something like Infura, you have no, you have no knowledge or guarantee that what the data they're giving you is the right data from the blockchain. So you can take the small feed directly from the beacon chain and cross-reference it with inf the inferior information they give you and have a very strong confidence, like very, very strong confidence that the data is correct. So no, you no longer have to trust providers because you can just add tech on this little bit of validation that's provided by a subset of the beacon chain validators to give you that. So this allows for light clients. So you no longer need to run a full node to have the same level of security or basically the same level of security in the data you're getting from anyone. I had a hard time trying to figure out like what incentivizes people to hold other people's data. That was a, a really interesting part of the, the conversation. And I, it's, it's, so then I started thinking about my own experience as a pirate back in the day when I used to pirate music. Um, sorry, Ludacris, your album was free for me back in the day. Sue me, please don't. Um, but the incentive was to have Ludacris's album. So then I would open up my computer, do it, download it, and then I would seed some stuff so I could download stuff faster. It was like a game almost. It's like how much stuff could I allegedly pirate, allegedly pirate mm -hmm. back in the day? So, I mean, like, what's the incentive for me right now? I think the incentive is there. Like, if somebody's like, hey, man, I want to pay you $5 to open up, you know, 100 megabytes on your hard drive. And I'd be like, sure, no problem. $5, what, a month, a week? Like, what are we talking about here? It's just storage, it's digital storage. It makes a lot of sense. But as I heard Yasik, uh, which by the way, uh, Yasik, you need a teacher that says, yeah, I'm sick, like 90 sick with somebody doing the peace on down. Um, you need to uh, 
you don't have to make that face, Christian. That was an excellent joke. Uh, <laughs> there, there needs to be a better connection between like. It's hard. It's hard for me to to like articulate what I'm trying to say. Is like, how is the problem not solved when I feel like it's been solved for a long time? What's I guess that's what I'm trying to articulate. Like, I'm trying to understand the differences just from, uh, you know, Lord of the GPPs here. I have Google Cloud. I can go anywhere. I can use that. I know that it's not just on one server in a Google Cloud bunker. I know they've got servers everywhere. Bunch of them. Just bouncing data back around back and forth. Like, why can't that be, like, that's the big recipe. But I'm not trying to make a big pot of spaghetti trying to make a little pot of spaghetti so i need to cut all that shit up into smaller pieces like why can't we emulate that on a smaller scale for just a node and then boom shakalaka like obviously you know i'm a lot i'm missing some parts here yep <laughs> but it just feels it just feels like okay well i mean they've obviously got like servers all over the place the technology's there like why can't the whole point of this space smaller? is to not have uh, like a singular entity that controls your data, though. The, uh, then it shouldn't that's be the whole point. No, that's that's the whole point. Like, like nothing people, about security and privacy is easy. It's just very and so cool. so people are trying to make solutions that are equivalent in terms of user experience, but provide the same kind of guarantees that you own your data and you, at least, it's distributed amongst you know. Uh, people like you know average shows running nodes versus you know google or amazon or cloudflare or whatever whoever yes, have when you open up when you like when you get that 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 ticket that says like hey can i use five dollars for 100 megabytes of your hard drive you gotta make damn sure that uh you don't get to know what's in that 100 megabytes and and if i ask you you have to be able to prove to me that you're you're holding it so you didn't say hey thanks for that you just don't you just don't do it uh, and so you, in order to give those types of guarantees, you have to distribute that data with redundancy across a, a, a network of people doing this work you have to do it in ways in which they don't get to know what they have, but they get to prove that they have what they're supposed to have that way. Like there's no way to censor any of that information yet. People who are contributing to the network are being paid commensurate to how much they're contributing. And that's really hard to do. Like it's, it's easy if you can see all the data and you can parse mm -hmm. through it and then you you're doing it all in a centralized way. That's relatively straightforward. But what we've seen is that when entities that do that don't necessarily like what you're doing, they take your data away. They don't, you no longer have that access. And what you said beforehand, which was, I think, the, the crux of this, this transition from now to the future of decentralized data is like with early blockchains, you trusted a node gave you the right data because they had to have it correctly mm -hmm. in order to run the node in the first place. So the process of being a data provider means that you need the data. But now with kind of like the, the new, newer solutions and things like Filecoin or, or data, like data distribution services, they're just running a data provider service and they don't necessarily care about it. So you need to incentivize them better because the likelihood that they do it because they're basically going to be more greedy because they no longer are running a node because they care. They're running a node because they're making money. And the data that they're providing has nothing to do with the process of running a node other than making money. 
then you have to do it in a different way such that they don't get to cheat. And that's really hard. And you have the same level of guarantees where like you just say, hey, network, give me my files back. And the network does it automatically with a bunch of potential malicious people inside that network trying to stop it. Mm. From from the point of view of a user, though, I agree with you, D. Like they just want it to be cheaper and better than what currently exists and easy to use. I think, right? Is that yeah? yeah better. There's Everyone's that afraid. aspect of it. There's another aspect of it that I that was opening such a huge rabbit hole that I just kind of noped out of that thought, and that's like, how do you protect this legally? Like, like that's what literally why I said like the 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 moment you're able to do content moderation, meaning you can see the data and you can mm -hmm. decide on what you'd like to do with it based on what that data is, is the moment you're legally liable to handle that data appropriately based on the jurisdiction you're in. If you can't see it, if you have no idea what it is and there's no way to prove it, then you're no longer culpable for holding that data. You're just providing a generalized data service. I think not financial or not legal advice either because like, yeah. Are even even the lawyers at status are looking into this right now d in terms of like if you have a piece of data that is let's say something like child porn right mm -hmm. and you, you can't right there. Why we whole, chose that one <laughs> and you can't construct the whole image are you still culpable and you know maybe maybe you are in a in a future in like 10 years from now maybe the legislation will change to say that yeah if you if you're holding an encrypted sharded piece or like a erasure coded piece of you are the, contributing the to the storage yeah. of some of said media but currently currently we're playing in the gray area where you should not be probably right so well we're trying to make systems that move from don't be evil to can't be evil i cannot be evil if i don't have the process of if i don't have the ability to manipulate the data if i can't if i don't if i can't choose things then i have less things to be able to do so that gives stronger guarantees to the users. Because like there's this huge pipe, you know, network of pipes and pipelining of the user interacting with the system. And mm -hmm. the less we give the middlemen options to do things, the more guarantees we can give to the users. Like, oh, mm -hmm. it's not gonna be altered because they can't, as opposed to uh, just trust them, they're good guys. Okay, good chat.